an exit If you blink you've gone too far We all get our news From the gal behind the bar It takes a village To raise this community And even if you don't go to church You say grace Or give your thanks before you eat This is us A small town in America And put simply We like things how they used to be We got one stop sign The bar closes at nine And we got an Exxon You can't miss it It's up there on the right And this is home We take care of our own If you can't relate Get back on the interstate and go Oh my gosh, you made it. Welcome to Climax the Podcast. Love letter to a small town, a product of the Climax Scots Digital Network. Per usual, I'm your host, Kevin Harvey, proud 1998 graduate of Climax Scots Junior Senior High School. I know I say it every week, but hopefully this is a welcome back. Hopefully you are subscribed on those podcast feeds like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Amazon, and more. If this is Welcome Back, hopefully you enjoyed last week's episode 15, Ice Cream Social with Cindy Bristol. If you haven't checked it out yet, well, you can go back and check that out in the archives. There was a lot to learn. You learned about the Bristol family. You learned about Scooters and its struggles over the years, its successes over the years. And I think one of my favorite parts was Cindy opening up a little bit about how she had some naysayers, some detractors there, and how she kind of stuck it to them just by being successful at what she does It's a really fun story. I was very enthralled by it. Go back and check out episode 15 if you haven't already. If you enjoy this show, we hope that you can leave a like, a review, subscribe, a comment, share the social media posts. Every single one of those things helps boost this show. It helps people who maybe have never even heard of Climax stumble upon Climax the podcast. It helps more people from the Climax Scots community maybe find the feed because they haven't been following the page. Any way you can help share the word of this show helps us out immensely. And speaking of helping us out, this is usually the part of the show where we talk about our sponsors and our partners, but it's not going to be me doing that this week. Oh no, we've got some special guests who are going to help out with that. If you listened to last week's show and you've been reading the articles on ClimaxScottsDigitalNetwork.com, you know that CSDN has been partnering with Ms. Jennifer Wright's journalism class in the high school. And we're going to turn this over to some members of that journalism class to take care of the business up front. Now, these ad reads turned out pretty good. I'm really proud of what the kids were able to do in their very first try doing something like this. It's not going to be perfect, and that's not the point. The point is to help these kids start to build these skills so that their content is going to be that much better when it's their turn to be the formal hosts on the mic. And with that, take away the business, kids. My name is Olivia Von Eitzen. I'm in grade 11. Each week, Climax of Podcast is brought to you in part by Kristen Wachowski with State Farm. Kristen is a CS grad and has been a huge asset to the community since opening her office in Battle Creek. Kristen's office is near the intersection of 20th and Columbia, right across the street from Ollie's. Kristen and her team can take the sometimes scary and intimidating world of insurance and make it easy and effective for you and your family. If you're in need of auto insurance, motorcycle insurance, homeowner's insurance, renter's insurance, life insurance, and more, you can give Kristen and her team a call at 269-968-5130 or visit her website at callkristen.com. That's K-R-I-S-T-I-N, callkristen.com. Hi, my name is Alexis Pyatt. I'm a senior at Climax Scott's Junior Senior High School. 
Did you know there's a quaint and fun bed and breakfast right here in Climax? And it's loaded with personality and history, too. Eldrin Homestead Bed and Breakfast is located at 6378 South 44th Street, and it's a perfect place to stay if you're coming back to visit the Climax Scots community or if you're visiting for the very first time. And if you're looking for a little getaway, but getting out of town is a challenging with everything your family has going on, consider a night at Eldrin Homestead. For more information and to book your stay, you can check out their listing on airbnb.com. You can call them at 269-808-8183, or you can send them an email at eldrinhomestead at gmail.com. Hi, my name is Devin Von Eitzen. I am a sophomore at Climax Scots. The podcast would not be possible with the help, without the help of the access to the archives of our friends at Prairie Historical Society. PHS has been documenting the histories of Climax Scots in the surrounding areas since 1984. The PHS archives are located at the the History Room at Lawrence Memorial Library and are open to the public Tuesdays from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. and Thursdays from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. PHS is a nonprofit organization fueled by the membership donations from the general public. To become a member of the Prairie Historical Society, it is only $15 per year and will also get you access to their six bi-monthly newsletters with deep dives into topics for our community's rich past. Payments can also be mailed to PHS 107 North Main Street, P.O. Box 82, Climax, Michigan, Four nine zero three four, And just like that, the business is done. Stay tuned after this week's main event for more updates on journalism class, the CSDN partnership, and even more things going on for the Climax Scots Digital Network. As for the main event this week, this is another installment of the Salute to Veterans series with guest host Dwayne Drolet and Frank Bowman Sr. This is not Frank Jr. Frank Jr. was the father of kids around my age, so if you're listening to this show and you were kind of in my bubble of 90s kids and CS, this would be Grandpa to Angela, Sherry, Jerry, and Frank III. And I can't wait to share this one from the Archives of Prairie Historical Society. I haven't been able to triple-check my homework here, but I believe Frank Bowman Sr. passed away in October of 2001, so it's been a long time since a lot of people have had the chance to hear his voice. And now you're going to get to hear his story. And as is always the case on the Salute to Veterans series, I do want to put on a trigger warning. The mood of Climax the Podcast is usually light and jovial. And a lot of this conversation is that too. But these are stories from literal war veterans. And these are going to be stories from soldiers who were at war for our country. As such, Almost anything that could fall under the umbrella of war stories may come up from time to time during this series. And without further ado, let's go to that main event of episode 16, the Salute to Veterans series with Frank Bowman Sr. With us, Frank Bowman, he's kind of a transplant. He wasn't born here. He may, he'd like to think he was. But, born in uh, Kalamazoo. Kalamazoo. And uh, about 1900? <laughs> 1923. 1923, okay. And uh, you, you've agreed to tell us about World War II and your experiences. So hey, where you start wherever you'd like to. Ain't much experience, but it's like... Well, it's there. Well, I went into the service and... August 41, 
and uh, went through uh, Great Lakes Training Center, which took a couple of months. And graduated from there and went into went to uh, Portland, Maine, got on a destroyer. There was about five of us. They assigned us to uh, the USS Texas, a battleship. And that was up in Newfoundland. So on that destroyer, we had to go up there to get on the ship. And when we got up there, we got on the ship. And two days later, we headed back to the United States, to New York. And on the way back, it got a stormy, and the waves got high. Waves kept coming over the ship, over the ship and freezing. Everybody had to get up on deck with axes and whatever they could to chop ice off of it. It was getting too heavy. So finally, when we got out of the waters up around Newfoundland, why everything was better than the storm lifted and that, got into New York and spent a few days there. Then we went up to uh, Iceland. We were up there all just a few days up there, never no shore leave or nothing. And uh, all of a sudden a storm come up. We had both anchors down on that battleship and the wind blew so hard that dragged that battleship down the channel. Honestly, who would think <laughs> that battleship with two anchors down wouldn't, wouldn't move? That's how strong that storm was. And here I was over on shore. I had to go over there for, well, I forget what it was. I had to stay in a Quonset hut over there until the storm blew over, and then I got on the boat and came back to the ship. And from there, we went up to Greenland. Then Greenland back to the States. And then we went to uh, French Morocco, down to Rabat. We were down there for oh, about two weeks. Then we left there and came back to the United States. So, ain't seen no action yet on that battle wagon. Right. Is that the this boat? No. No, that's not, not this one. Okay. No, that's not this one. Okay. And uh, so they come up for volunteers to go to get on a new ship in, in uh, Newport. And uh, that's in Virginia. And uh, I volunteered for it and I got it. So they shipped us down there to get on this ship right here, the USS Biloxi, a new one. They just commissioned it. And from there, on a shakedown cruise, we went down to Trinidad. On the way down, we had to fire all the guns at targets. Plane pulling a sleeve to fire at it to make sure the guns are working and they're in top-notch condition. And uh, ships tow another targets for the larger guns. And we've done really good on them targets. Then when we done, got to Trinidad, we were down there to give shore leave. And it was hot down there. Went over and walked around. Some of them got boosted up. Had a good time. Come back, got on that. And we came back up to Newport because there was some 
minor details on it they had to fix before the ship would be battleworthy. Then from there, we took off and down around New Orleans and through the Panama Canal to the Pacific. Then we went from the Panama Canal on the other side and then up to Frisco. Got supplies and everything. Nobody got to go ashore or anything because <clears throat> we was going to pull right out again after we got supplies. And then we headed out to the Pacific <coughs> where all the stuff was going on. But before, on the battleship Texas, I was in Portland, Maine when uh, Pearl Harbor happened that Sunday morning. And uh, that's why they wanted these us guys to get on this southern new ship and get out in the Pacific. Then we went down to Midway and battle there was just over. So we cruised down by there and never even stopped. Went on out and then we got assigned to Task Force 58. That's where we joined them out there in the Pacific. We stayed with Task Force 58 all the time I was in the Pacific. And uh, the task force had a job of going around up, up and down all of the Marianne's, the uh, Salons, hitting all these islands, bombarding them every time they go by them to soften them up. Truck, Palu, Palu, and uh, Iwo Jima would go by there and bombard the heck out of it. Hit those caves and stuff up there on the right. point where you see where they showed them caves and stuff up there. We had a plane on our ship, and that's what that hoist is back there, the crane. The plane, we'd launch a plane off our ship onto a, a catapult. And uh, that plane was an observation plane. They'd send it up with a pilot, and he'd go fly over the island. And then we'd be firing, and he'd tell you where the targets were. Or we was firing too short or wasn't hitting the target to do whatever it could. But mostly, on our ship, we had pretty good armament. We had uh, four four eight-inchers, three barrels each on a turret. And then we had... Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six five-inchers turrets, five-inch shells would fire. And the eight-inchers would fire the eight-inch shells. That took bags of powder. They'd ram the shell in and then ram the powder in and then fire. Yeah. We had hoist that bring the ammunition and the powder up from down below up to the, uh, the gun room up above that they loaded in and that and fire and everything. And uh, the five-inchers had five-inch shells, but it had brass casings with powder in them. So when they fired them five-inchers, they had guys outside with big uh, asbestos gloves and that, grabbing them shells as they shot out to below the turret. They had an opening there when the gun fired and then the shell dropped down and come out back. You had to grab them shells, stack them, 
Sometimes them shells got so thick on the deck you had to kick them overboard. Because <laughs> they'd send them shells back to the States to be really right. primed and powdered up. Right. <clears throat> but when they got so thick there, you had to kick them overboard. But one night we were patrolling out there and all of a sudden, I, I was on a four hour watch, eight to midnight. And uh, I was a trainer on the five inch at that time on that watch. So all they saw general quarters. Uh oh, action. And here I'm looking out through the scope, working that turret around, you know, and then all of a sudden come over, fire control will take over. So you just sit back. Fire control would operate that turret and operate the guns and everything. They'd even fire them. So I'm looking through that scope, wondering what the heck's going on. All of a sudden the barrel's coming in and they shot. And they fired about Oh, six rounds out of there. And all of a sudden, I seen a burst up in the air. They hit the plane up there with that five-inch shell and blew it up. And that was it. So one time, they were uh, them five-inchers had to turn at the same time, you know, to come around and elevate. Because right. one was down here and one was up here. Then one over on this side was down, and one this same one was up here. One time they got miscalculated on it to come around, and this one had the barrels up. Come around, they fired right into that barrel. Ooh! So they <laughs> had to put that one out of commission. They had to wait until they got another barrel out there from supplies that you know they send out. They had to work on that to get that back into working order. And we also had depth charges on here in 20 millimeters. 20 millimeters, now them are for aircraft. And uh, every other shell is a tracer. And when they fire it, the first shell goes out as a right. shell, and then the other one would be a tracer. So you can line your fire up on whatever you're shooting target. Right. And, uh, One time we went, uh, what was it, uh, Chuck? On well, one of the islands we, we was bombarding, and uh, they shot back at us. And they couldn't quite reach us. We were out just far enough to where their shells would hit, but you could see where it was splashing. And uh, we never got hit. Only one time we got hit, and uh, one fellow got injured. That's the only fellow that ever got injured on our ship during the war. And he had a piece of shrapnel. You know, right here where he sits. <laughs> Boy, did he get teased. Well, anyway, we, uh, our ship was involved on landings just at Iwo Jima and uh, Okinawa. But Iwo Jima, that was, well, landing troops in there, and we just kept firing shore, firing our batteries up to the shore, you know, softened it up as troops were going in. And then we'd cease fire while they were on the shoreline. And uh, then we'd watch out for planes or whatever. And we had guys come out in the barge there, 
come out in barges. Hey, got any fresh bread up there or anything? We'd taken steal some bread out of the bakery and take it and throw it overboard to them so they could have some fresh bread. Right. And the guys, boy, they were all dirty. And, and that, where, we're, where we were pretty good. We had a nice clean bed to sleep in. We had nice fresh showers, good meals. And didn't have to dig your, foot out, your food out of the dirt. Right. <coughs> so, uh, We, uh, yeah, Salem Island, there's a whole bunch of islands there. And the Marianas, there's a bunch of islands there. All them islands, a lot of them didn't have any planes on them, just troops, Japanese troops on them. But we bombarded the heck out of it anyway. But I don't know if they ever landed any troops on them because it wasn't there. But anyway, from From Iwo Jima, we had uh, we had one wreck island, a recreation island we went to, and they had uh, submarine nets across the entrance because the Japanese had them two-man subs out there with a torpedo in it, and they'd try to sneak in when the ship comes in. They'd sneak <coughs> in right under the ship with it. One time we went in there to the wreck island. We got in there and they closed up the net. It wasn't in there but a oh, half an hour. All of a sudden, boy, the old sirens and destroyers went off and everything, and here they are coming around. Boy, look at each split, dropping charges and everything. So it must have been one of them two-man right. subs got in there. See, they, what they were after is the aircraft carriers. Right or whatever they could hit after that. If they could get the aircraft carriers, they'd get the other yeah. ships. But the task force, when it always went, destroyers would be on the outside, light cruisers, heavy cruisers, and then the battle wagons, and then the aircraft carriers would be in the center in order to, uh, all these other ships would be able to get. We're gonna take a break, just a minute, Frank. And then, uh, well, we had shore leave on that little island. And they had what they called three two beer. They had that locked up down the brig. So they went over on the island. They set this beer over with it. No ice or anything. It was as warm as could be. <laughs> and they'd give each guy about four beers, and that was it. Yeah. But then some guys that didn't drink beer, the other guys were buying it off. Yeah. They'd had to drink quite a bit of that three two beer to get a little high. But anyway, that was and we played softball over there and soccer or whatever. And at the other end of the island was the office, officers rec recreation island. But then they had better stuff than we did. They had the whiskey and the booze and stuff <laughs> over there. <laughs> but this guy that hauled it up from the beach to the officers on the other end of the island. Every once in a while he'd throw a case off, you know, and fix up the, the invoice. And then uh, he'd sell that whiskey to the guys on the island. Yeah, on the rec having recreation there. I had to pay 80 bucks to $100 for a fifth whiskey. Oh, that's a lot of money. But, yeah, they had plenty of money out there. Yeah. And uh, 
Well, to get back to it, after Iwo Jima, we cruised around out there on some of the islands, and then we went up to Iwo Jima. That was a nightmare up there. And uh, that was just not very far from Japan. Right. And uh, they landed troops up there, and we just bombarded the heck out of that. We never did get that close to up there to bombard the, uh, that, that island, Iwo Jima like we did the other islands before the troops landed. But anyway, before the troops did go in, we bombarded the, the shoreline and everything and inland and whatever. And uh, uh, they were, then all of a sudden they start sending out them suicide planes. And uh, with them young kids in them, they'd send them kids out there not even 16 years old. They were going through pilot school there at the time. And they'd give them a red sash to put around them, give them a shot of vodka and put them in a the plane, and that was it, enough gas to get out there, and that was it. Yeah. They weren't to come back. Right. They had to either kill themselves or just fly until they run out of fuel, and boom, that's it. Yeah. We were shooting down anywhere from, oh, God, 50 to 100 planes a day, and sometimes less. Not just your boat, you mean no, the whole Yeah, the whole <laughs> Right. Right. Because that, that way, the, like I said, the cruisers, the destroyers, the cruisers, the heavy cruisers, and the battle wagons, and then the aircraft carriers were in the center. That's what they were trying to get at there. The yeah. suicide planes were trying to get at the aircraft carrier. Or coming in, they couldn't get to them, they'd hit whatever they could. Right. If they was getting shot up, and they knew they was going to crash without hitting anything. They'd try to hit maybe the, the battleship or the heavy cruiser or light cruiser. Right. And what Raymond told him, said, showed on his ship. It was really a disaster on his ship. Right. I was on the uh, after deck. I was on the depth charges we had on there. We had Y guns on there, that's all we had. We didn't roll them off like the others. We had Y guns that shot them off. Right. And uh, I was uh, gunner's mate third class. And uh, all you could see was the smoke globs in the air where the shells exploded and the tracers going, the shells going and everything. And you're watching it all, you know, I'm right out in the open. And uh, here, 20 millimeter right over here, had a shield around it. So all of a sudden this plane come in real low right towards our ship. And I said, oh, and these guys, <laughs> never hit it. Hmm. Right on the aft deck, back here on the, on the port side, that plane crashed in. And the bomb that it was carrying, it didn't explode. Hmm. Because if it did, I wouldn't have been here right now telling yeah. this because I was standing on that deck. And I tried to get over behind the shield, but uh, my earphones, the cord wasn't long enough. And I was hollering down the fire control, can I get, a, get out of these phones and get on behind the shield? They said, no, stand fast. I'm standing there. But that bomb would have went off and it blew the whole back end of our ship the after part of our ship off. 
We had uh, them depth charges there, and they had the depth charges down below where they stored them. That's right in there where they hit. And that bomb never exploded. The plane fell back into the, the ocean. And here that bomb is sticking out of the side of the ship about three, four foot out. And it was about a six foot bomb and uh, never exploded. It, did, it was a dud that detonated it. Yeah. When it hit, it's supposed to blow. Right. It never did. So we uh, stayed out there for a couple more days. So we couldn't do nothing, so much speed or anything with that hole in there. They had white uh, watertight hatches in there. They had them closed off so it wouldn't flood. And we left a, a task force after things quieted down a little bit out there to, at Okinawa and a couple other ships. And we left and came back to uh, Pearl Harbor. And from Pearl Harbor, we went up to send uh, Frisco Navy Yards up there to get the ship fixed. And we got a 30-day furlough and came home. And I went back to the ship after 30-day furlough. And I put in for electric hydraulic school at San Diego. Because all of our equipment, a lot of our equipment there was electric hydraulics, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, got down to San Diego. There was about four of us put in for it. We got down there and uh, hung around there for two days. And all of a sudden they come out and they says, well, we ain't got enough for the class yet. We're going to give you another 30 days to go home. Hmm. <laughs> Come right back home. Everybody at home said, what are you doing home already? Again. I said, got another furlough. <laughs> so while I was home, the war over in Germany and that, over in Europe, quit, ended. Boy, did things raise that current calendar. <laughs> and then I went back, and then they had this point system. And if you had... Uh, so many years out there, how many years you had in, right. and the points had to add up to so much, you could put in for discharge. So I put in for discharge, and they shipped me back up the Great Lakes, I got my discharge from there and came home, and that was it. I was home for about, oh, about six months. Things weren't going so good. So this Army recruiter got a hold of me, and he started talking to me. He says, why don't you sign up and go back in the service in the Army? I said, what? <laughs> he says, well, he says, I can get you into the paratroopers and you can make 50 bucks extra a month. I said, can I hold my rank when I go in there? He says, yeah. I said, well, okay, sign me up. So I went back into the Army paratroopers as a sergeant. <laughs> and then I got shipped from... Well, after we went through parachute jump school, we again came home, and we were supposed to go back out to Seattle, and Seattle over to Japan. Now this was after the war, right? Right. And uh, shortly after the war, so they shipped us up to Northern Honshu. Man, cold, big airfield up there, Japanese airfield, cold. Man, that sake is pretty good stuff. <laughs> 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 and we were up there for well, close to a year, 
and we came back down into New Orleans. Now we'd get a furlough to come home again. Now that being in the Army. So I was down there for, well, for quite a while and put my time in. And then I said, well, give me a discharge and I'll go home. So I got discharged and I came home. And that was it. So you were in the Navy how many years? I went in 41 and uh, BG. I forget what year it was we hit Okinawa. Three years, I think, I was out there in the Pacific. Yeah. I was in it all together four years. Four years in the Navy, yeah. and then how about the, the Army? Three. Three in the Army? I had seven years in. So, so you've had a lot of military time. Yeah. Well, thank you. Uh, is that about the, the story you'd like to share with us? Yeah, because what, mostly what we've done is bombard them islands out right. there. And do as much damage as we could. Try to turn them into Swiss cheese. And every time we had to refill, we refilled at sea, not in any ports. Always at sea, off of big tankers. Yeah. We pull alongside and refuel. Same way of getting our ammunition and our food. Yeah. We'd uh, ammunition ship uh, transport pull up alongside. We'd tie up. We'd just be moving real slow. And they'd try to put them shells and powder and everything in big nets and then hoist them up on cranes and bring them over and drop them in the ship. And the guys would have to be all lined up and hand the shells to one guy and one guy to the other and the other. And then to lower it uh, through, down through the turret, down into the uh, magazine room. And at one time it, we was uh, loading shells on an 8-inch. And you put them hoist in reverse, that brings the shells up, you know, right. it's just like a, it comes up and then goes around, goes back down, comes back up like that. And this kid in there, he, all of a sudden he hollered, hey, look, my thumb's gone. I'm spurting out of him and everything, and he's holding it up like that and hollered that. And what had happened, he got it caught in that hoist in that shell oh, and tore his thumb off. So they had to quick put another guy up there and he went down to sick bay to get his thumb fixed up. <laughs> and we finished unloading, getting getting our shells back and everything, and then we'd pull away from the ship, go on about our business. You must have made a lot of buddies in the service, didn't you? A oh, guy yeah. like you. Yeah. But you know, do you hear do you hear from any of them now? Yeah, I don't even remember their names now. You don't? No, my mind's blank. I couldn't even think of their names now. Huh. None of them. I thought maybe you still contacted some of I had guys. a picture at home of our gunnery crew. I was uh, in the armory down there in the ship too for a while. And I was on guard mail. I used to run guard mail. That's when we, in the islands, I'd take, uh, get in the bar on the boat and take the wear 45 sidearm. That thing, if I tried to shoot that, it'd probably knock me into the lake or something, the ocean or something. But anyway, take that mail from ship to ship to ship. So the captain's got their orders that way. Because they didn't want to use the wireless and stuff. Well, they, that could be tapped into and they could... could so they, I was on guard mail there for a while too, taking that stuff. In fact, I was on quite a bit. I was in the 8-inch, 
the gunner in the 8-inch. But on that, well, back, I'll go back up here to the USS Texas. Now, that one had 14-inch guns on it. I mean, the shell is 14 right, inches around. Right, right. And they're about that big. And two sacks of powder on them things, and them powder bags were about that long, about that round, 14 yeah. inches round. And they'd load that shell, come up, they'd load it in on a tray, and they'd jam that in. Then they'd jam two bags of powder in behind it. And I was a pointer on that one. Just above my head was the barrel of that gun, that 14 inch. And I'm looking out, and boy, that thing, you had to really crack that thing to get it around, you know. And uh, to get it going and get the sh barrels up or wherever they wanted them, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, they fired that. Boy, I'm telling you, that thing would go, <clears throat> just like that. And that was another experience. Did it rock the ship a little? You know, there's an old there's an old story. Now I know old Navy guys don't lie, but uh, <laughs> I've heard say that if they fire all the guns on one side of the ship at the same time, the tip, ship would tip over. Is that just a? No, they're pretty well balanced. Uh, we were one time up in the China Sea and we ran into a, a typhoon up there, and our ship got a rolling so bad. That you could practically walk on the on the bulk on the bulkhead, uh, yeah, the bulkhead. You could roll around. <laughs> it was was that it was rocking yeah, that. It was really rolling. I mean, yeah. it it rolled. Wow. And uh, you'd sit there. We didn't dare to put up the mess tables. We had to sit on the deck and eat in the mess hall. You got your tray there. And, all of a sudden you grab a bite in your tray, it goes sliding down there and then come back and grab another bite. Did you ever get seasick? Nope. I never did get seasick. Are I don't lucky? know why. You're lucky. A lot of them other guys did. It really is an honor and a privilege to have these recordings made available to us by Prairie Historical Society and to learn stories of the veterans and the heroes of the Climax Scots community like Frank Bowman Sr. As mentioned at the top of the show, want to do a little bit of a recap of sort of journalism class CSDN partnership so far. We're only two full weeks in. I'm recording this Tuesday evening, so we're only like two days into week number three, and there was even a half day in there, and there was no school last Friday. What these kids have accomplished in a very short amount of time it's really blowing my mind in a very positive way. The recording equipment we use isn't the most intuitive. It's a little bit complicated, and a lot of the kids are taking to it like ducks to water. They're starting to get a little more excited now as they're realizing they're about to start being able to create their own content that's going to be shared with the world right here through the Climax Scots Digital Network. Week one, we covered pre-production because there's a lot of work that goes into making a podcast besides just hitting record. In fact, for Climax of the Podcast, one episode of this show is usually anywhere between 5 and 15 hours of work to get an episode, to plan everything, meet up with the people for the interview, edit the interviews, get the sponsors. Like, it's a lot. I won't bore you guys with all the details, but it's a lot that goes into making this anywhere from a half hour to like hour and a half show every week. 
Then we started diving into production and production is where we're at right now and we are about to start producing their content and that's where I think things are really gonna start to get exciting. Week three, I think everybody in class now has passed their equipment validations showing that they know how to use the podcast equipment. Those were conducted by Ms. Wright and myself. And very soon you're going to start to see some of these blogs and podcasts from the current students of journalism class at Climax Scott's Junior Senior High School. As far as other things from CSDN, be on the lookout for some more videos. We're going to make an effort to cover more Panther sports. Last week, we were able to share a video on the volleyball team, hoping to get something out for the football team before their next playoff game this Saturday. There's a lot more Climax Scott's Community School activities, things going on in the academics, other organizations, and we're really trying to get out there as much as possible. Resources are just a little bit limited right now until we get that journalism class and some other folks kind of up and running and going. And another big thing I can only say so much about for right now is I am currently in the process of filing the 5013C paperwork to formally make Climax Scott's Digital Network a nonprofit organization. There's a lot that goes into that, and there's a lot of reasons I'm looking at doing that. I can't go into it all right now, but in short, it should all be things that are going to be very good for the students in Climax Scott's Community Schools, for the Climax Scott's community, and just overall transparency of where different money may be coming in, or if you're donating to the show, where's that money going to and what's being accomplished. Something else I do have to get in place to file the 5013C paperwork is we do have to have a formal board for CSDN. I do have my first board member committed, Jennifer Wright. She was the gateway into the school, so it makes sense to have her involved as a board member as we get a 5013C nonprofit off the ground for CSDN. I do have a couple other people I know I'm going to reach out to, some I already have. There's two people I kind of have in my sights I'm going to be sending emails, actually probably tonight after I'm done recording this. If you have been following CSDN, if you are picking up what we're putting down, so to speak, if you would like to be involved in CSDN and the different ways we are trying to help the entirety of the Climax Scots community, send me an email, admin at climaxscotsdigitalnetwork.com. And again, we've got to plug that website. That is really the main hub for all things CSDN, climaxscotsdigitalnetwork.com. That's where you'll get our news and blogs. That's where you'll get our videos. That's another way you can get to this podcast in addition to climaxthepodcast.com or your favorite Climax the Podcast feeds. You can see links to our sponsors. There's ways you can donate to the show. Your donations and your support are so key, especially as CSDN is really just starting to get off the ground and especially going for nonprofit status. I think a lot of folks can kind of read between the lines of what we've already shared and what I can kind of ambiguously share right now. I really think with the different efforts and the different people starting to get involved, I really think this is going to turn out to be a very positive thing for the community and actually bring us together using technology instead of kind of technology screens maybe keeping us apart a little bit more. And with that, it's that time of the week where we bring a close to this episode. Once again, thanks to all of our partners, Kristen Wachowski with State Farm, Prairie Historical Society, Eldred Homestead Bed and Breakfast, and double thanks to PHS because this episode would not be possible without the archival access that we have. Thank you, CS High School students who helped with our ad reads this week. And thank you to all of you who listen to this show, who support this show, and who are following and support all things Climax Scott's Digital Network. That's all for this week. We'll talk to you in just about another week. Thanks for listening, everybody.